Well, good morning again to each of you. In the name of Jesus, that one that is the light, the truth, the rest. Pretty much sums up everything that we need and desire. It's just a blessed privilege to be again together with God's people and to worship together in singing and study. I'll confess I didn't do a lot of studying for Sunday school. I was studying for something else, but I was I was blessed with our discussion and, and just stirred to to meditate as we discussed together the the plan of God, the purposes of God, and and how everything works together and the bits and pieces that that fall into place as we study. We serve a mighty and an awesome God. Turn with me, if you would, to the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi. It's said that it's a good thing that we have a plural ministry and you don't have to hear from the same preacher every Sunday because some people like casserole and some like salad and some like hot dogs and there's a variety. So if you're back for your another dose of sawdust cake, well, here we go. Now, I, I trust that what we will see here this morning will be a blessing. Um, there's a lot from Scripture. There's so many angles, so many, so much truth in so many different ways that it's stated. And sometimes the message is the same, but it's said in a lot of different ways. And if we look at the Old Testament, which I've been looking here at the latter end of, of Israel's history, the message was for those people. But the, the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. Well, we're not Hebrews, so why do we study it? There's something there that we can learn, we can glean. And so as we look here at, at this prophecy, or the, the words of, of the prophet Malachi, they weren't written specifically to us. They were written to people in a certain context, a certain time, a certain place. They were dealing with issues. But there's a lot of parallels to our own lives. Maybe more on that here shortly, but as we think back on, on the messages I brought recently, Haggai was where I was going to go, and I gave some background of Israel's history before that, but Haggai's message was a call to right priorities. The people had, some of the, of the captives had returned, but they were focused on themselves, and they were not getting the temple rebuilt, which was why Cyrus sent them back. His message was, when God is honored, he will honor. 
And yet it seemed that after the temple was built, rebuilt, there just wasn't a lot of zeal in putting things first. And a lot of the blessed hope that Haggai talked about was not realized. The people continued in, in struggle. The walls weren't rebuilt. Ezra found things in a disarray, and that was a number of years later. He came and he instituted a number of reforms and he encouraged the people to faithfulness to, to the law. Kind of the crux of his message was one of separation coming out from the people and the, the heathen influence of the, the surrounding culture. If you remember all the issues that Nehemiah dealt with, the opposition that he faced, the people faced, especially from Tobiah in rebuilding the wall, and then he, he left Jerusalem for a time, and when he came back, Tobiah even had a room in the temple complex. And that just, what was going on? Where was the, the purging? Where was the heart that was seeking God? There was, again, intermarriage with the heathen. And he instituted more reforms and, and, and brought about some degree of separation, but it seems that a lot of the re Reformation was external. It was something that people kind of complied with. They may have performed the duties and the obligations of the covenant, but it seemed like their heart just really wasn't in it because there wasn't victory. We discussed the law a little bit in class. You know, why Was the law good? Why, why couldn't the law bring about the change, bring about perfect people? But we see here's the end of the Old Testament, and we're still here in a, in a, a place of failure to truly bring glory to God as, as the nation of Israel. This prophecy is likely about a hundred years after Haggai and possibly in the latter part of Nehemiah's lifetime. So it follows probably very closely there, roughly 400 B.C. This is, begins here, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And what I what I have, have done is I've looked at these, I've read this book multiple times and tried to understand it in context, but also tried to extrapolate. What would Malachi say to us? What are these messages for those people in that time, but what might it sound like if he was here? saying the burden of the word of the Lord to my people here at Pike or my people today. These were God's chosen people. These weren't the heathen of the land. And as I think about that, preaching in, in one sense that we see in the New Testament is often evangelistic in nature. It's, it's proclaiming to the heathen the message of the gospel. And yet what we often have here in this setting is an exhortation and admonition to God's people. And that's what the prophets were, most of them. Now, some of them did prophesy to heathen nations. But here, this was to Israel. 
And the first sections uh, here in this through Malachi, the Lord makes a statement or asks a question. He envisions the response of the people and then he asks another question or expands on the initial question or, or, or charge. And we'll see that here. Verse 2. This is what the Lord is saying through Malachi to Israel. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? They could be envisioning they're, they're still under Persian control. It's just life isn't very good yet. They don't have a king. But he says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Think if God would be saying this to you. I have loved you. You have all either been born into a Christian family or have at least heard the message of the gospel. Many people in the world have had neither of these blessed privileges. Do you realize the privileges and blessings you have? And do you want to extend these blessings to others? Sometimes we may think our lot isn't so wonderful. But do we realize how blessed we are? And that was the call here. Do you realize? You may say things aren't well. Do you realize the blessings you have? Continuing to verse 6. The Lord speaking, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear or my reverence? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name, and ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. It seems here that there was a loss of respect for God. That... Maybe the priests were allowing the people to bring the lame and the sick. They knew they were to bring the best. It calls out the priests here. And I don't know, they weren't the ones that were bringing the offerings, but maybe 
they weren't being strict enough in their requirements of the people. To reread verse 10 in the New King James, it says, Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I wish there was just someone that would stop all this because it's repulsive to me. That was the message to the people. And here is my paraphrase to us today. If I'm the Lord God of heaven and earth, why are you losing reverence for me? You say you love me and want to honor me, but the tendency is to choose your own pleasure over service in my kingdom. You devote the best hours and years of your life to getting ahead, to making yourself financially secure. I only get the leftovers. When you come to church, you come with a casual attitude, demeanor, and a self-serving attitude. What can I get out of this? Would you show up at work with that attitude? If you've had this attitude, don't expect me to honor your prayers. If you give me this, if you have this kind of me first attitude, you may as well just stay at home. Your presence and lip service are repulsive to me, says the Lord. And the things that I say here, they don't apply to each one. It's not that I'm pointing to you or you or you and saying this is you. But this is a general message that God was bringing to the people. And I'm, I'm trying to put it in today, what might God say to us? Because some of these things are here, some might be there. They don't all fit all of us, but yet the message is here. What can we glean from it? Do we just point fingers at them and say, yep, yep, they were bringing their bad animals. Shame on them. What bad animals do we bring? Verse 11 is a contrast here. You're thinking of these people that are losing their reverence for God. They're not giving God their best. And then he says, from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. There are many people in the world who do not have the spiritual heritage that you do, but that truly love and want to honor me. They may not look like you do, have the resources you do, or even have a very good knowledge of the scriptures. But they have repented of their sins and are committed to follow me no matter what. Think of those in the world that are persecuted. They hear the message of the gospel and they're willing to lay down their life for it right now. It grips them. The awesomeness of God in his salvation. Verse 12. But ye have profaned it, it being my name, God says. Ye have profaned it in that ye say, 
The table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof. Even his meat is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness it is. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn and lame and the lame and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male and a voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. And to us, but you complain if you are expected to go to church more than just Sunday morning. You work all week and yet can hardly bring yourself to put money in the offering. Yet you order the fancy new lace curtains, the fiber optic sight for your bow, the new fancy wheels for your car, whatever it may be. Do not think that I do not take notice. I should be your first love and not take what is left. I will say this, there was quite an outpouring, as Brandon said. The Bible school offering was evidence that people want to give to the Lord. And I want to bless each of you parents that enabled your children to give. This may not be quite for you here. What have we done to lift up the Lord's name or to profane it in how we reverence him and how we honor our vows? In chapter two. And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If ye will not hear and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse. I will even send a curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feast, and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. There was a question asked in our class this morning about priests. The patriarchs seemed to be the priests of their families. And then in the time of, of the law following Aaron, we had the priests. And now Jesus is our great high priest. Have we kind of reverted back to where fathers are priests? And if you would recall, about a year and a half ago, Dale Heisey had a message here about being priests. We being priests in our relationships with people. 
we bear people in our hearts before the Lord, whether it's our children, whether it's our brothers and sisters, whether it's the lost. And, and that's, that was a deep challenge. But as I looked at this, before we thought about it, talked about it in Sunday school, I, I took this back to the father level, thinking of myself and my need and how this, this denunciation may apply to me or to one of you fathers here. And you fathers, this message is especially for you. Pay attention. If you're a hypocrite, your children know it. Disciplining your children in anger will surely be detrimental. A father's job is to teach and train his children in the ways of God. Your life should demonstrate what you teach. If you say you love the Lord with all your heart, do your actions line up? You should be reading the scriptures to your children and explaining them. It is your responsibility to instill in them a love for the things of God, a desire to praise and obey him. Teach them to honor the Lord by being humble, honest, and kind. Your leadership in the home is the most important and impactful part of your life. If we are priests, that message is to us. And a verse from Ephesians 6 says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's the New Testament said a different way to what I just said. Verse 8, but ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers. Message, my question to us, haven't we all been taught the gospel? Haven't we all made a commitment to Christ and the church? Why have you agreed to support the standards of the church and then turn around and disregard the directives. You say you love the Lord, but you give other things priority in your life. I don't have a lot of specifics, but I've, I've heard a number of references to Things happening to, I've seen some things, but hearing, well, these people, they watch these movies. And I'm going, wait a minute, why are these youth watching these movies? We have a standard that says that we don't watch movies defined as, it's in our, in our agreement. 
There have been charges brought against older brethren that are listening to country music and encouraging young people to do so. How? Why? We've said that we aren't going to do that. Have you been partial in the law? I'm not equating our rules and discipline to the law, but it's an, it's a, an agreement that we've made as a practical application of the principles of Scripture, and we've agreed to uphold it. Let's be careful that we don't live a double standard, that we give the impression that we want to be faithful, but that yet we turn around and do things that others see, perhaps our children most of all, that we are not living up to the standards that we have agreed to. Is that faithful to what he's saying? To what God might say to us? Brethren, I'm not here, and sisters, I'm not here to try to, to make us, to, to take something out of context but I'm trying to take the tenor of what's being said to those people in that time and bring it here to us. And if I'm doing injustice to the word of God, please tell me. But I'm hoping to bring us a challenge from these words to make them here in our day. Verse 11. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. If you remember back to Ezra and Nehemiah, one of the biggest Issues that they had to deal with was intermarriage with the heathen. And it's brought up again by the prophet Malachi. You have vowed to be pure, but you keep finding an excuse to wander through certain aisles at the supermarket that allow you to feed your sensuality. You have agreed to be open about your internet use, but you found a way to hide your contentable use of your smartphone and think no one knows. We don't have polygamy. We don't have some of the, the, the overt things that were going on here. But I think the message to us is purity. Purity in our hearts. And we know what the psalmist says in Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Verse 13 says, And this ye have done, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. And this verse I could not figure out how, who it was saying who was covered? You'd think if we come to the altar and we're crying that God will hear us, right? In reading it in a number of different versions, 
The idea is here that the women are coming and crying because of the way their husbands are treating them. And they're saying, God's saying, if you treat your wives with the contempt, you dishonor them, I won't hear you. Your actions cause much distress, and because of your unfaithfulness, I will not hear your prayers. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. This is closely related to the next section here in verse 14. Yet ye say, wherefore? Why doesn't the Lord hear us? In other words, God's answer, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the spirit and wherefore one that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. Does that have any practical implications today? I hate divorce, says the Lord. Take heed to guard your heart. It is not just the legal act of divorce that makes me angry. It is a failure to honor the covenant you made with your wife. You promised to love her and cherish her but you really live for your own desires and pleasures. You promise to keep yourself only unto her, let you let, let, yet you let your eyes and mind wander. You must keep your hearts pure for your spouse or your future spouse, those unmarried. The faithful family is a most beautiful and effective way to ensure the torch of faith is burning when we are gone. This is an area that our contemporary Christian society seems to have no grasp of. little sideline, just thinking about Bible school, summer Bible school, and what community children do you invite, and how, how many do you have contact with, and, and why, why, why couldn't we get a lot of community as in neighbor children? And, and thinking out, I was talking to, to someone, they said, yeah, years ago, there were a lot of community children, but then it got to be where the level of immodesty and dress and things coming, it made it difficult to know how to deal with. But you know, back, if you go back, 60 years, 80 years, however far you want to go. There was a lot more of, of the same 
Well, let me go back. In some of the reading and, and study I've done and thinking about hearing how some of the Methodists back in the mid-1800s and the Mennonites looked a lot alike, acted a lot alike, and actually believed a lot more alike than what we do today. And there's a divergence. And it seems like there's this, this area of divorce. It's not even thought about by so many. But here it is. This isn't some New Testament, newfangled Sermon on the Mount only teaching for some future time as some would relegate the Sermon on the Mount. This was the Old Testament. This was the cry of the heart of God to the people. I hate divorce. I hate putting away. When you make a covenant, you honor your covenant. And that covenant isn't just lip service. It says here that God's desire for that marriage covenant is because he's seeking godly children. He's seeking a godly posterity, someone who will pass on the faith. And in the context of a faithful home is the best place for that to happen. And Jesus refers back to this. In Matthew 19, 4, he says, And he answered and said unto them, ye have, have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? It's the beginning in Genesis. It's reiterated strongly here at the end of the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes back and says, Yes, this is, this is the way God made it to be. Verse 17, chapter 2. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, Where is the God of judgment? I think God here is saying, You try my patience when you doubt my character. I don't know what all the people that Malachi was prophesying to, what they thought. But they were not living a very glorious, in a glorious setting. They were still somewhat captives, even though they were in their homeland. I think this was burning, burning in their hearts, rankling in their hearts. Why doesn't God see? And I believe the, rest, the next two chapters answer this question. Where is the God of judgment? Chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. The, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver 
that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be swift against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. God says, I hear. I know this. I know what you're, you're thinking. And I'm sending a messenger who will clearly articulate who I really am and what I really desire. My presence never returned to the rebuilt temple as it was in the first, but I will come. As Emmanuel, God with us. This messenger will address the hypocrisy and the dead formalism. And where truth and integrity reign, sin will be forthrightly dealt with. If you really love me with all your heart, you will love your neighbor as yourself. As so many of these prophets did, they brought a message that was not very, not very palatable to the audience. Most of them were of judgment. There's not a lot of judgment here as far as you will suffer because this was post-captivity, but it was a callback. But here again is that light, the light looking forward to the Messiah. And I failed to give you the title that I had written here, and it may help understand my thoughts. A title for the message would be Integrity in Soul and Service. And we see that in, in hearts and in the actions. And here it talks about the, the, the reform, the, the justice that will be brought, the judgment against sin. Where truth and integrity reign, sin will be forthrightly dealt with. This messenger would come and it says here, I will be swift against those living in, as adulterers or sorcerers, false swears, and those that oppress others. those that oppress others. I had to think of you know, the truth of the greatest commandments and how oppression of others stands in direct violation of the second great commandment. To love your neighbors yourself. And if you don't treat your employees fairly, if you take or oppress others, take advantage of them, that is a failure to follow that commandment. And it's impressed me how often that, that message comes up. And I didn't take time to go do a thorough study or search. But, but thinking of, of this thing of oppressing others. In Ezekiel it says that Sodom withheld bread from the poor and needy. And... In James 5, we have the reference to 
to keeping back higher from those that have reaped down your fields. And that was to, that was written in the New Testament age to people there. Consider how you're treating others. This messenger will come. Was the message here, and this messenger has come. And we need to open our hearts up to his refining, to his purifying. That we can be pleasing. Our offering can be pleasant unto the Lord. Verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. And ye say, But wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, and there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and, ye shall, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. To us, perhaps, if I, the Lord, were not a long-suffering God, I would long ago have deserted you. Many of you have never really been truly faithful to me. Your heart is always chasing after other things to bring fulfillment. But if you turn to me, I will turn to you. Turning to me requires obedience, a demonstration of your commitment. Try me and see if I don't notice. If you cheerfully give, I will cheerfully and abundantly bless. I believe we heard the verses here last Sunday from 2 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. There's our part. In that next verse, his has when someone pointed this out, it, it has it's always stuck with me. It's interesting how some things you may hear and never think about again. But I think about this very often. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Now, what do we lack? The all, all, all to every. That's God's blessing, promised blessing if we will give. And that's his desire here. I don't think it was just, he was just wanting, well, he was wanting obedience. He was wanting a full commitment. The tithes and offerings, they were required, but they were, they were a sign of, God, this is due you. This is your right. God says, just show that you really are serious. Prove it. And it may not be money that we need to give. Maybe it's time. Continue on. 
Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken against thee? Ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is there that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. And they that... So that, that's what they were saying. Maybe I'll just stop here. And, and read. I know that there are many that see no blessing in living a life of separation and holiness. It may appear that those who reject the practical applications to the principles of Scripture are just as happy as those who faithfully observe and do. Verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Not all of you fall into the category of unbelief and dead works or outright lawlessness. I hear those of you that discuss with an honest heart a desire to live a holy life. You think about my purposes and how your life will be a testimony and a witness to the truth. I notice and I'm keeping track. And while not everything is obvious to all, the righteous and the wicked will each receive the just reward of his ways. A beautiful picture, a beautiful promise that God hears what we think and say. He notices our interaction with each other. What the purpose of that interaction is. Chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that come... And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I do, shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember, the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I send you Elijah. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to, the fa to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Where is the God of judgment? You ask, the day is coming when I will right all wrongs. I will bring punishment upon those that turn their back on me. And I will gloriously bless those of you that truly honor me. Be faithful to do what you know. I faithfully call back my erring, the erring ones. 
Again, fathers, your highest priority is shepherding the hearts of your children. Remember, parents, your children aren't, don't interrupt your work. They are your work. Integrity in soul and service.